you're going to notice we're we're in we're going to start out in Jeremiah chapter five, and you're going to notice me skipping around. I mean, I obviously skip around outside of Jeremiah every single lesson, but even within Jeremiah, we're going to start skipping around. And and part of the reason is because there's parts of it that are very repetitive. It's God gave him the same message ninety five times. <laughs> You know, to, to tell the people, and, and, and we're going to talk about the characteristics of the message today. We're not going to read every single one. Another reason we're going to skip around in Jeremiah is because Jeremiah is not chronological as it is in the Bible version of it is not chronological. And I'd rather give it to you chronologically so we can relate it to the kings that it was related to and the world events that were happening at the time. So I am going to skip around. Um, but, but just so that you don't feel like totally cheated, I am going to tell you that, that there's five major elements of almost every single prophetic message in Jeremiah. The first thing that is in the, each prophecy is an indictment of Israel and Judah for being stubborn and stiff-necked. And we're going to read in Jeremiah 5, I'm going to skip around in, in chapter 5, I'll kinda, I'm going to start with verse 1 and I'll kind of holler out the, the verse numbers as I go so you can keep up with me if you're, if you're reading along. But as we read this, think about how these words in this prophecy written so long ago to an ancient and an ancient nation over on the other side of the world are so applicable to where we are today to our culture and to our nation today jeremiah 5 1 go up and down the streets of jerusalem look around and consider search through her squares If you can find but one person who deals honestly and seeks the truth, I will forgive the city. Verse 3. Oh, Lord, do, do not your eyes look for truth. You struck them, but they felt no pain. You crushed them, but they refused correction. They made their faces harder than stone and refused to repent. Verse 7. Why should I forgive you? Your children have forsaken me and sworn by gods that are not gods. I supplied all their needs, yet they committed adultery, thronged to the houses of prostitutes. And he's not talking about idols here necessarily. He's talking about literal going to the houses of prostitutes here. They are well-fed, lusty stallions, each neighing for another man's wife. Should I not punish them for this, declares the Lord? Should I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? Verse 11. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have been utterly unfaithful to me, declares the Lord. They have lied about the Lord. They said, he will do nothing. No harm will come to us. We will never see sword or famine. The prophets are but wind, and the word is not in them. So let what they say be done to them. Verse 21, hear this, you foolish and senseless people who have eyes but do not see, who have ears but do not hear. Should you not fear me, declares the Lord? Should you not tremble in my presence? I made the sand a boundary for the sea, an everlasting barrier it cannot cross. The waves may roll, but they cannot prevail. They may roar, but they cannot cross it. 
But these people have a stubborn and rebellious hearts. They have turned aside and gone away. They do not say to themselves, Let us fear the Lord our God, who gives autumn and spring rains in season, who assures us of regular weeks of harvest. Your wrongdoings have kept these away. Your sins have deprived you of good. Verse 26. Among my people are wicked men who lie in wait like men who snare birds and like those who set traps to catch men. Like cages full of birds, their houses are full of deceit. They have become rich and powerful and have grown fat and sleek. Their evil deeds have no limit. They do not plead the case of the fatherless to win it. They do not defend the rights of the poor. Should I not punish them for this, declares the Lord. Should I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? A horrible and shocking thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy lies. The priests rule by their own authority. And my people love it this way. But what will you do in the end? I mean, that could be clearly written about modern times. And it kind of makes you wonder what's going on in the heart of God at this moment. You know, as he looks at us and tries to draw us back from the edge of destruction. The second element of each prophecy from the Lord, after the indictment, is a warning of immediate danger. In this case, of invasion from the north and utter ruin with no hope of rescue by the Lord. Look back at uh, chapter 4, verse 7. A lion has come out of his lair. A destroyer of nations has set out. He has left his place to lay waste to your land. Your towns will lie in ruins without inhabitant. Verse 9. In that day, declares the Lord, the king and the officials will lose heart. The priests will be horrified and the prophets will be appalled. Verse 11. At that time, this people and Jerusalem will be told. A scorching wind from the barren heights in the desert blows toward my people, but not to winnow or cleanse. A wind too strong for that comes from me. Now I pronounce my judgments against them. Poor Jeremiah. He's receiving these words from the Lord and being told to go tell them to the people. And he is literally standing in between the people and an angry God. He sees vision after vision of destruction, calamity, and it's absolutely tearing him up on the inside because he loves both the Lord and his people. Look at, we're still in chapter 4, verse 19. This is Jeremiah. Oh, my anguish, my anguish, I writhe in pain. Oh, the agony of my heart. My heart pounds within me. I cannot keep silent. For I have heard the sound of the trumpet. I have heard the battle cry. Disaster follows disaster. The whole land lies in ruins. In an instant, my tents are destroyed. My shelter in a moment. How long must I see the battle standard and hear the sound of the trumpet? You see, he's seeing all this really vividly. It hadn't happened yet, but he is like pre-living it as the Lord shows it to him. Verse 23, I looked at the earth and it was formless and empty and at the heavens and their light was gone. I looked at the mountains and they were quaking. 
All the hills were swaying. I looked, and there were no people. Every bird in the sky had flown away. I looked, and the fruitful land was a desert. All its towns lay in ruins before the Lord, before his fierce anger. Well, after the indictment of sin and the warning that disaster was about to fall, the third consistent element of the prophecies is a call to repentance to avoid calamity. We read some of these at the beginning, I mean, at the end of last week's class, at the end of chapter three and the beginning of chapter four. But the call to repentance is scattered throughout Jeremiah's prophecy. Even though he is the last major prophet sent to these people, the Lord still has the door open for repentance. You know, the armies have left, the train has left the station. The, the enemy armies have left their homelands heading towards Judah. And still the Lord has the door open for repentance. Because in the end, repentance is all the Lord is after. He just wants to pull the people away from their determination to self-destruct and from their insistence on pushing his blessings away with both hands. The Lord just cannot understand why they wouldn't want to be blessed. He doesn't understand why we wouldn't want to be blessed. Why we hold on to our brokenness, to our willfulness, to our material things, to our entertainments, to the things that tempt us. He doesn't understand why we would hold on to those instead of letting go and opening our hands to his blessings. Jeremiah six 16, we're just going to read one verse. It's a really famous verse. This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. And then skipping forward to chapter 7, verse 3. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Reform your ways and your actions and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And what he's saying there, you remember that scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark at the beginning of the movie when they're showing him the picture of the Ark of the Covenant and saying, you know, if the Israelites took this into battle, all of their enemies would fall down before them. You know, well, they... They didn't take the ark into battle, generally speaking, but but the idea was right. The Lord did walk ahead of them into battle, and their enemies did fall down before them, okay? And they have this, the, Judah, ha, even though Israel's already been carried off into captivity, Judah is still thinking, well, but we've got Jerusalem, we've got the temple, we've got the ark of the covenant. We're protected. Nothing, the Lord's not going to let that get destroyed. Think again, is what the Lord's saying. Verse 5, if you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the alien, the father, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your forefathers forever and ever. But look, You are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. 
Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known, and then come stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, oh, we're safe. Safe to do all those detestable things? Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. We are guilty of sinning every day, you know, following our own desires. We, we can relate, I can relate to this, you know, knowing that, that even though our own desires are wicked and destructive, we, we kind of have this mindset that, well, you know, we can go to church on Sunday and everything will be forgiven. We get a clean slate. We start the next week and we do whatever the heck we want to. Because the next week we can go back. I mean, this, the chain that we that we have in our head is sin, pray for forgiveness, be forgiven through the grace of God. And that sounds good, but there's a piece missing. And if you look in your notes, there's a blank. What needs to go in that blank? In between sin and prayer for forgiveness repentance absolutely genuine repentance meaning and that means you genuinely do not want to follow the path of sin anymore that's why john the baptist was sent ahead of jesus look what luke says about john the baptist in luke 3 verses 3 and 4 john the baptist went into all the country around the jordan Preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. What, what he's talking about is preparing the way for the Lord by repenting. That water baptism signifies that repentance. With it comes complete forgiveness. But repentance is a necessary element. It marks a point of change. Now, all we can do, of course, in our weakness and our chain of sin is to cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, I am helpless to change myself, but one thing I can do, I can repent of my habitual sin and choose you. And I can continue to choose you and repent. I can do my best. That's all I can do is my best. You know, and the rest of it's up to you, Lord. And doing my best includes getting help, getting resources, putting myself in a position so that I'm not tempted. All right. It means doing everything that you would do if you really meant to change the direction of your life. You can't make it change. You can do a lot, though. <laughs> you know? And I think we fall into kind of a lazy trap of, of thinking that grace is going to make our, our desire for sin go away without any effort on our part at all. And grace, with grace, we are forgiven for being human and for, and for that sin. But we... You know, if you ever read anything Paul wrote, 
you know, he talked about how hard you had to keep trying, you know, how you had to persevere, how you had to run the race, how you, how you really had to watch what went into your heart and into your soul, all right? Um, it's not, yeah, and that's what we're, that's what we're doing here. I mean, there is huge release in that initial repentance and baptism in becoming a child of God. But that is just the door. And what we're working on now is how do we move beyond the doorknob? You know? <laughs> so the fourth thing, of course the Jews, like many of us, did not repent. We want cheap grace. They wanted cheap grace. We want the kind that allows to con- us to continue to sin during the week and absolves us freely on Sunday without any change in our heart. And God saw this in Judah. And knowing their stubborn hearts, he still wanted to preserve them as a nation somehow. So each prophecy, the fourth element in each prophecy, is a tender promise that even if they choose destruction... Even if they cling to sin and to their idols, the Lord still loves them. And some part of their nation will choose him. Collectively, the nation may, may end up, will end up in ca- captivity. But there will be people within that nation, captives, whose heart belongs to the Lord. And whose face is turned towards the Lord. And the Lord, because the Lord loves the nation, he is going to save a remnant. He calls it a remnant throughout the Bible. A remnant is going to be saved so he can fulfill all his promises of blessings to their nation. They'll have to be fulfilled in the future. They could have had those blessings fulfilled at this point. But because they push the blessings away, God will just have to wait and fulfill it later. Now that's not going to help these particular individuals who are fixing to get carried off into captivity, but it does bring a ray of hope to their future descendants. Look at Jeremiah 5, verse 10. This is an example of this part of this promise that gets embedded in these prophecies. Verse 10, chapter 5. Go through her vineyards. The Lord is talking about Judah. Go through her vineyards and ravage them, but do not destroy them completely. Strip off her branches, for those people do not belong to the Lord. You see how he's using the imagery of stripping away the branches but leaving the trunk. Skip down to verse 18. Here's another place where he's inserted this little promise. Yet even in those days, declares the Lord, I will not destroy you completely. Now, he actually made the same promise to Israel before she got the ten, you know, the ten northern tribes before she got carried off into captivity. And if you look at Isaiah 57, Isaiah is the book ahead of Jeremiah. It's just before Jeremiah. So if you flip back to Isaiah 57, verse 13, this Isaiah was like Jeremiah. Jeremiah is the last major prophet sent to Judah. Isaiah was the last major prophet sent to Israel before she went into captivity. It starts out with an indictment, but look how quickly it turns to tenderness and compassion. Isaiah 57, 13. When you cry out for help, let your collection of idols save you. 
The wind will carry all of them off. A mere breath will blow them away. But the man who makes me his refuge will inherit the land and possess my holy mountain. And it will be said, build up, build up, prepare the road, remove the obstacles out of the way of my people. You recognize that? We just read a similar quote, you know, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight the paths, level the low places. All right. That was actually from a different place in Isaiah. Here it is coming up again in Isaiah, this, the Lord saying this. For this is what the high and lofty one says, he who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. That's beautiful. I will not accuse forever, nor will I always be angry. For then the spirit of man would grow faint before me, the breath of man that I have created. I was enraged by his sinful greed. I punished him and hid my face in anger. Yet he kept on in his willful ways. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will guide him and restore comfort to him, creating praise on the lips of the mourners in Israel. Peace, peace to those far and near, says the Lord. And I will heal them. Because you now understand the history of the Israelites, of Israel and Judah, and what's happened to them up to this point, and because we're going through these prophecies of Jeremiah, you can also understand the parallel story that relates to Israel. So you should at this point be able to read Isaiah on your own and completely understand what's going on in the book of Isaiah. Because it's basically identical to Jeremiah in terms of context. Okay, it's just to the northern tribes. And it is a beautiful book. And the, the week after I get back, um, obviously during that week I won't have time to prepare a lesson. But I thought maybe I would bring just a little handout for you. And we can look at it and talk about how the different prophets, the books of the prophets in the Bible fit in, where they fit, what their message is, and who they're talking to, and you can just stick it in the back of your Bible. And that way, anytime you open your Bible, no matter where you open it to, you will know what that book's about and who he's talking to. You know, because at this point, you have enough knowledge to get that. So that's pretty cool. Well, Isaiah is packed, if you read him, Isaiah is fantastic. He's packed with messages of tenderness and compassion and redemption. And there's way too many for us to read together. But here's some excerpts from Isaiah 55 that you may recognize. Go to the beginning of Isaiah 55. You'll recognize these. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me. Hear me that your soul may live. Verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. 
Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts and neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Verse 12. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills will burst into song before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush will grow the pine tree, and instead of briars the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sign which will not be destroyed. Just beautiful imagery and beautiful blessings that are there for you and me. Those are for you and me. We are part of Israel and Judah. We were grafted in by Christ. And so these blessings that are going to happen to them in the future are for us. And these choices are for us. It's in Isaiah, in fact, that God gives prophecy after prophecy about the Messiah about the Savior of Israel, and about the end times, about the millennial kingdom, about what that will be like. It's terrific. So the last and the fifth and final element in the prophecies is that God promises to punish the nations that attack and ravage his people. God is allowing the attacks for the sole purpose of winnowing out the evil from among his people. It's the exact same role the Holy Spirit can play in our hearts now. He will winnow out the evil out of our hearts if we let him. You know? We, but we get to choose. Still, the bottom line is that Israel and Judah, as bad as they are, and us, as bad as we are, are holy and precious to God, as precious as a beloved bride. And the nation that dares to ravage her will not go unpunished. Habakkuk was a prophet in Judah at the same time as Jeremiah. Jeremiah was the last major prophet, but he wasn't the only prophet of God during this time. We only have a few pages of the prophecy of Habakkuk. You know, he's back at the end of, of, the, of the Old Testament, and his, he's only got like three pages long. But in those pages, he records the great and terrible wrath of God against the nations that actually are going to come and attack Judah. So if you look at Habakkuk 3, I, I, you probably have to look in the table of contents to find it unless you've got tabs on your Bible. Or unless you got one of those iPad theme bobs <laughs> and can just look it up. But Habakkuk 3, verse 3. God's glory covered the heavens and his praise filled the earth. His splendor was like the sunrise. Rays flashed from his hand where his power was hidden. Now I want you to just picture in your mind this image of God. His glory has covered the heavens. Praise fills the earth. His splendor is like the sunrise. Rays flash from his hands where his power was hidden. Plague went before him and pestilence followed his steps. 
He stood and shook the earth. He looked and made the nations tremble. The ancient mountains crumbled and the age-old hills collapsed. His ways are eternal. I saw the tents of Cushan in distress and the dwellings of Midian in anguish. Were you angry with the rivers, O Lord? Was your wrath against the streams? Did you rage against the sea when you rode with your horses and your victorious chariots? You uncovered your bow. You called for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. Torrents of water swept by. The deep roared and lifted its waves on high. Sun and moon stood still in the heavens at the glint of your flying arrows, at the lightning of your flashing spear. In wrath, you strode through the earth, and in anger, you threshed the nations. You came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness, and you stripped him from head to foot. With his own spear, you pierced his head when his warriors stormed out to scatter us, gloating as though about to devour the wretched who were in hiding. You trampled the sea with your horses, churning the great waters. I heard, and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones, and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. I think we often scale God down to our own size. Just so we can be comfortable thinking about him. But we need to stop often and stretch our minds to consider what the word God really means. What exactly is a God? We tend to think of God in terms of his characteristics, his love, his patience, his concern for us, and even occasionally we'll consider his discipline or his anger. But that passage in Habakkuk gives us a picture of the majesty and overwhelming power that is God. So with this backdrop, let's switch gears and go look and see what King Josiah is up to. When we last saw him, he'd just turned 21. He'd been king for about 13 years, had a kid, he had, had his, the, the heir to the throne when he was 16. Okay, so he started young, like most kings. For the last year, he's been traveling around the country, busting up the altars to the idols and tearing down the Asherah poles. Now, about five more years have passed. Josiah's about 26 years old now, and he's decided to repair the temple, which has been sadly neglected and abused. And it's recorded in 2 Kings 22. He pulls together a big team of workmen and craftsmen. They start importing timber. They start importing cut rock, the stone, the masonry that they're going to need. And you can imagine how filthy this temple was. It had been in complete disarray, used improperly for how many hundreds of years, right? Well, the temple is 2,700 square feet. That's about the size of an average three-bedroom, two-bath house in middle-class America, okay? And it is like a rabbit warren filled with little rooms, and each little room had a special, was supposed to have a special purpose related to the 
functioning of the temple. And there's porches all around. So the priests are going through, or at Josiah's command, the priests are all going through these rooms, clearing out the junk, dust is flying everywhere. They get to this one room, they pull out of the book, a book, and it says, Book of the Law. And the high priest hands it to the secretary and says, Read this, and just tell me if we need to keep it or not. <laughs> Didn't even know what he had in his hand. That's how bad things were. Well, the secretary starts reading the book of the law and immediately realizes what he's got a hold of. This, this is the word of God. This is what Moses wrote. This is what they were supposed to have been living by. Immediately, he takes it to the king and starts reading it to the king. When King Josiah heard the blessings that I read to you earlier in an earlier lesson and the curses that we studied, remember the choice that Israel needed to make, that Judah needed to make? When King Josiah heard that, he knew he was in deep trouble. And he tore his robes, he wept, he humbled himself before the Lord. He said, Lord, what do I do? What can I do at this point? We are doomed. So what he did was send the secretary and the high priest to a prophet. He was able to think in his head, oh, I know a prophet. And you know what? It wasn't Jeremiah. You know who he sent them to, to ask, to inquire of the Lord? What does the Lord say about this? He sent them to a prophet named Weasel. <laughs> he did. Her name in Hebrew is Holda, but it means weasel. Okay. So that's recorded in 2 Kings 22, verse 16. And this is what she told him. This is what the Lord says. I'm going to bring disaster on this place and its people, according to everything written in the book the king of Judah has read. Because they have forsaken me and burned incense to other gods and provoked me to anger by all the idols their hands have made, my anger will burn against this place and will not be quenched. Tell the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of the Lord. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says concerning the words you heard. Because your heart was responsive and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I have spoken against this place and its people, that they would become accursed and laid waste, and because you tore your robes and wept in my presence, I have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, I will gather you to your fathers, and you will be buried in peace. Your eyes will not see all the disaster I'm going to bring on this place. And so they took her answer back to the king. Now King Josiah is really alarmed. I mean, he's a young man. He's only what? How old is he now? I'll have it in your notes. 26. So he's a young man. So they, you know, the nation has a few years. Disaster is coming. He's not going to live to see it, but it's coming. So King Josiah gathers all the priests, all the leaders, all the court, all the people together. And in 2 Kings 23, 3, it says what he did. He gathered them all at the temple. The king stood by the pillar and renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord to follow the Lord, to keep his commands, regulations, and decrees with all his heart and with all his soul, 
thus confirming the words of the covenant written in this book. Then all the people pledged themselves to the covenant. Uh, Verse 21, the king gave this order to all the people, celebrate the Passover to the Lord your God, as it is written in this book of the covenant. And not since the days of the judges who led Israel, that was even before King Saul, before King David, before King Solomon, in the time of the judges, since the time of the judges until this day that Josiah declared it, never had such a grand Passover been observed. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was celebrated to the Lord in Jerusalem. Of course, we know from what we've looked at that this conversion was just skin deep for the people. It was real for Josiah, but it was just skin deep for the people. The people figured they could use the name of the Lord for their protection and still do whatever they wanted. For every Jeremiah, Habakkuk, and Weasel that came along, they could drag up ten other prophets that said, Ah, don't pay any attention to them. They're just making all that up. Look, we're rich, we're happy, we're fine, nobody's been beating on us. Things are going to continue. You know, don't pay any attention to Jeremiah, Habakkuk, and Weasel. And the people didn't want to change, so they didn't pay attention to the word that the Lord sent them. So go back to Jeremiah, chapter 6, verse 13. And here's what the Lord said. From the least to the greatest, all are greedy for gain. Prophets and priests alike, all practice deceit. They dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. Are they ashamed of their loathsome conduct? No, they have no shame of it at all. They do not even know how to blush. So the the prophets that were false prophets just told the Lord, told the people, they said, peace be with you, go in peace. You know, how often do we hear that? And have we inquired of the Lord as to whether that's his word or not? In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, the Apostle Paul warned Timothy, a young pastor, quote, that a time was coming when people would not endure sound doctrine, but instead would gather teacher upon teacher to tickle their ears with what they wanted to hear. And so they would turn their ears away from the truth and be turned towards myths. And that's true. That is what's happening. The world around King Josiah is a bombshell, and it's ready to explode. It's a really brutal barbarian time. The Assyrians and the Egyptians weren't the only ones attacking the tiny nation of Judah and the surrounding kingdoms. They were attacked frequently by all the smaller kingdoms surrounding them. It's not, nations back then were not like we perceive of them today, where they're great big, there were city nations, city kingdoms, small kingdoms, you know, that would attack and fight and war. But the Lord saw this. The prophet Zephaniah was a member of the royal family in Judah. He, He was actually descended from King Hezekiah, but he also was a true prophet of the Lord. And sometime early in the reign of King Josiah, we don't know exactly when, but sometime during this time frame that we're looking at tonight, 
He prophesied the downfall of the nations that attacked Israel and Judah. But at the same time, he prophesied the downfall of Jerusalem for her rebellion against God. And the prophecy sounds eerily applicable to us today. Zephaniah 3, verse 1. Woe to the city of oppressors, rebellious and defiled. She obeys no one. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials are roaring lions. Her rulers are evening wolves who leave nothing for the morning. Her prophets are arrogant. They are treacherous men. Her priests profane the sanctuary and do violence to the law. Chapter 7, I mean verse 7. I said to the city, surely you will fear me and accept correction. Then her dwelling would not be cut off, nor all my punishments come upon her. But they were still eager to act corruptly in all they did. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day I will stand up to testify. I have decided to assemble the nations, to gather the kingdoms, and to pour out my wrath on them. All my fierce anger, the whole world will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger. Now that's really harsh, you know, but just like the prophecies in Jeremiah, that whole, you know, disaster is coming message is followed immediately by a vision of blessing in the future. The Lord is letting this disaster happen to cleanse us, to, to winnow out the evil, to get our attention. But his whole goal every time is to bless us. Very next verse, verse 9, Zephaniah 3, verse 9. Then... I will purify the lips of the peoples that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, my scattered people will bring me offerings. On that day, you will not be put to shame for all the wrongs you have done to me because I will remove from this city those who rejoice in their pride. (laughs) I hope I'm not rejoicing in my pride because I want to stay in the city. I want to stay with the Lord. Never again will you be haughty on my holy hill. But I will leave within you the meek and humble who trust in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel will do no wrong. They will speak no lies, nor will deceit be found in their mouths. They will eat and lie down, and no one will make them afraid. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Verse 19. At that time, I will deal with all who have oppressed you. I will rescue the lame and gather those who have been scattered. I will give them praise and honor in every land where they were put to shame. At that time, I will gather you. At that time, I will bring you home. I will give you honor and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your very eyes, says the Lord. That's a beautiful picture of the reign of Christ when when Israel is going to get gathered back. But back to Judah. Sometime during King Josiah's 20s, it does appear that the Scythians, who are a fierce people from southern Russia, come down. They're coming. They're kind of off my map. They're way over here. They come and they actually come and attack 
right along the coast of the Mediterranean. And um, they are going to go to Egypt. That's where they're heading. But when right when and and when they stomp on the the Philistines, when they conquer the Philistine cities, the, the Philistines live right on the on the edge of, on the coast of the Mediterranean. Here, um, that fulfills the prophecy in Zephaniah, and there are other prophecies. You'll you'll find the Philistines being mentioned in a lot of these prophecies that are happening at this time. This whole area is, is going to get destroyed. But anyway, the Scythians come and they're heading for Egypt. Well, they got stopped at the border of Egypt by Pharaoh Samtik, P-S-A-M-T-I-K, Samtik. And Pharaoh Samtik was able to bribe the Scythians to stop and not attack Egypt. He said, what do you want? What, what do you think you're going to get? You're not going to want to stay here because you live way out there. All right. So just, you know, you're here for the plunder. Hey, you stop. I'll give you the plunder. Just turn around and go home. Just here's the money. Take it. And it worked. They turned around and they went back. Sam, Pharaoh, Samtik had come to power during the reign of Josiah's grandfather. And when that had happened, Egypt had already been split by civil war. It had, just like Israel and Judah, Egypt had split into a northern and southern kingdom. So Pharaoh Samtik had spent his whole reign reunifying Egypt. All right. And um, by the time of King Josiah, Egypt is, has once again on the rise as a, as a united and powerful nation. But even Egypt couldn't compete with the great and terrible nation of Assyria. The Assyrians were notorious for their cruelty. They, they were horrible to the people that they conquered. According to my NIV study Bible, which I just love, there were historical records of Assyrian kings gloating over the gruesome punishment they inflicted on their conquered peoples. The leaders of the conquered peoples were tortured and mutilated before they were executed. One of them erected a pyramid of chopped off heads in front of the gate of the city that he had conquered. Others of them just stacked the bodies up like firewood outside the gate. This is, this is what is heading for Judah, and they know it. It was into the hands of the Assyrians the ten northern tribes had already fallen. The, the Lord had lifted his hand of protection from these northern tribes and so they were no longer protected from those atrocities. But still, the Lord watched over them. We read, you know, just a minute ago, a tiny sample of verses from Isaiah where the Lord expressed his tenderness toward Israel and his plan to rescue them as soon as they remembered him and truly humbled their hearts towards him. And the Lord definitely announced his intentions of taking vengeance on the Assyrians for their cruelty to the ten tribes of Israel. An example of this is the book of Nahum, the prophet Nahum, N-A-H-U-M. He's another little tiny one there in the back. And it was about the time of King Josiah that the Lord gave the prophet Nahum a vision about the end of Nineveh, which was the capital city of Assyria. Nahum 3, verse 1, Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without a victim. 
The crack of whips, the clatter of wheels, galloping horses and jolting chariots, charging cavalry, flashing swords and glittering spears, many casualties, piles of dead, bodies without number, people stumbling over the corpses, all because of the wanton lust of a harlot, alluring the mistress of sorceries, who enslaved nations by her prostitution and peoples by her witchcraft. I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. I will lift up your skirts over your face. I will show the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your shame. I will pelt you with filth. I will treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. All who see you will flee from you and say, Nineveh is in ruins. Who will mourn for her? Where can I find anyone to comfort her? Nahum uh, 1 verses 2 through 8. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and maintains his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. But the Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and it dries up. He makes all the rivers run dry. Bashan and Carmel wither, and the blossoms of Lebanon fade. The mountains quake before him, and the hills melt away. The earth trembles at his presence, the world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into darkness. So when you read a passage like that now, you should be able to recognize that all that fire and brimstone is directed to Nineveh, to Assyria, to idol worshipers, to people who are attacking and ravaging God's bride. And yet, interspersed, almost every other sentence was God's tenderness towards his people, towards those who love him, towards those who set their hearts on him. All right? So, don't get confused when you're reading in the Old Testament. It looks like God's angry all the time. God's not angry all the time. All right? It's a very focused, purposeful anger, and there was a lot of warning before it happened. You remember Nabopolassar? the um, Assyrian general who broke off from Assyria and made himself king of Babylon. Well, he's been continuing to chip off pieces of the Assyrian empire. He's been working his way up the Tigris River, which is this river here. This, this is the Euphrates, and this is the Tigris over here. And if you see, Nineveh, which we just read about, the capital city is up here at the top, far, way far up the Tigris. Um, Nabopolassar... When Josiah was about 33 years old, decided that he was going to conquer Ashur, which is this little town here. That is the old capital of Assyria. They, it used to be the capital. The capital's moved further north to Nineveh by this time. But he's coming, see, Babylon is down here. Nabopolassar's working his way up, and he decides he's going to attack Ashur on his way to Nineveh. Well, he failed to conquer it. So he had to go back home. Well, military expeditions are done kind of on an annual basis. 
Okay, so they would go out, they were, there would be a season for attacking and a season for going home and planting crops, you know, for, for going home. And so he, he failed that year and he went back home. Well, the next season, the next year, the Medes, who are, oh, my arms really aren't long enough. This is Persia over here. And, and if you can see, this, these are mountains. You see this part is all mountainous. The Medes live up in these mountains. Okay. And so the Medes decide they're going to attack Ashur. And they sent messages to Nabopolassar in um, Babylon and said, come help us. So he sets off to come help him. Well, by the time he got there, King Sia, let's see, what's his name? He's got a funny name. Siazeres of the Medes had already conquered Ashur. Nabopolassar got there too late to help, but he got there and he met King Siazeres of the Medes and they really struck it off. They decided it was to their advantage to join forces and make an alliance and together conquer Assyria. And they sat there, they made an alliance, they married, they agreed to marry off Nebuchadnezzar's son, who you will recognize his name, Nebuchadnezzar, to Siazeres' daughter. So the kids get married, the dads sit there and decide which parts they're going to split, who's going to take what when they conquer this, this empire. So the plans are laid. The Babylonians and the Medes are getting ready to attack and bring down Assyria. So, within another year or so, they actually did make it up the, the Tigris and conquered the Assyrian capital city of Nineveh, fulfilling the prophecies I just read you. Well, you can imagine that the news that Nineveh, the capital city of the Assyrians, had fallen, traveled fast. And the news quickly reached who do you think was really interested? Egypt, their age-old in- enemy. Okay, now Egypt, at the, by this time, Pharaoh Samtik has passed away, and Necho, his son, Pharaoh Necho, has become ruler of Egypt. Now, Necho's thinking about this. He's thinking, okay, the Assyrian Empire is crumbling. Here's my chance. I can take some of that land. And, you know, and I also need to stop the Babylonians and the Medes from coming all the way down to Egypt. Okay. So he's thinking, you know what I need to do is I need to go up here to Karshemish, which is right here, up here in the northern part of the Euphrates River. Well, that town happened to be a major ford for crossing the Euphrates. You can imagine you couldn't just cross the Euphrates any old place you wanted to. All right. All right. So... That these two these two rivers, the Tigris and Euphrates, are what's making this green here. Okay, so this is a trade route that's been established forever and ever. And Karshemish is a major crossing, and it is a supply route supplying the Medes and the Babylonians. So Pharaoh Necho says, "You know what? I need to go up and cut off their supply route, and on my way." I can maybe, like, grab some of this territory for myself. Maybe, you know, that can become the dividing line. Maybe the Medes and the Babylonians can have the East. I can have the West. I'm just making this up. But this is, you know, the strategy he's thinking. And besides that, if, by chance, the Assyrians actually beat 
the Medes and the Babylonians, I'll look like the good guy for coming to the aid of the Assyrians. Because it will look like I'm coming to the aid of the Assyrians against, since I'm fighting the Babylonians and the Medes. So he sets out, and there's one other thing, which is kind of interesting. A third reason why he decided to do this. Apparently, according to the Bible, God himself told Pharaoh Necho to march out from Egypt against the Babylonians and to do it quickly. So Pharaoh Necho gathered an army, marched north, and he stomped on those Philistines also as he went. So the Philistine, all those Philistine prophecies about them being destroyed, that's been done twice now. Okay. So he's heading for Karshemish, and he's not even thinking about little old Judah at this point. But for some reason, King Josiah decided to go out, to march an army out, and confront Pharaoh Necho. Even Pharaoh Necho couldn't figure out why in the world he was doing it. King Josiah, of all people, should know that God told Pharaoh Necho to go north and battle the Medes and the Babylonians. So let's look at Second uh, Chronicles 35, and this is the last thing we'll read, the last few verses, because it's the, it's the end of the story. Second Chronicles 35, verse 21. This, this may be a good class to invest in some of those tabs like what Carrie has. <laughs> okay, Second Chronicles 35, 21. So, Necho sent messengers to King Josiah saying, What quarrel is there between you and me, O king of Judah? It's not you I'm attacking this time, but the house with which I am at war. God has told me to hurry, so stop opposing God who is with me or he will destroy you. Isn't that funny? Isn't that weird that the Pharaoh of Egypt would be saying this to the king of Judah? Josiah, however, would not turn away from him, but disguised himself to engage him in battle. He would not listen to what Necho had said at God's command, but went to fight him on the plain of Megiddo. Archers shot King Josiah. And he told his officers, take me away, I am badly wounded. So they took him out of his chariot, put him in the other chariot he had, and brought him to Jerusalem, where he died. He was buried in the tombs of his fathers, and all Judah and Jerusalem mourned for him. Jeremiah composed laments for Josiah, and to this day, all the men and women singers commemorate Josiah in the laments. These became a tradition in Israel and are written in the laments. So Josiah willfully disobeyed the word of the Lord. We do not know why, why he did that, but it cost him his life before the age of 40. And now the way is cleared for the end of Judah. Because remember the Lord promised that Josiah would be gathered to his fathers before disaster struck. That's happened. So we're going to stop there.